In case you're wondering why we uh, are reading scripture that I'm not directly preaching from, you just heard Colossians 1 read to you, but you know that I'm preaching from Psalm 119, uh, is because uh, the verse that I'm going to preach to you today uh, is helped by Colossians chapter 1. Uh, you need to hear the truths that Colossians 1 delivers so that you'll better understand Psalm 119, verse 5. Besides that, if you were to hear Psalm 119 read the entire time, the entire duration of every Sunday, uh, there would be very little time for preaching. Um, that may be a joy to some of you, but uh, I wouldn't have reason to get paid. So I, I want to have you think theologically about where we're heading in this psalm, and I want you to see the interconnectedness of Scripture. So Colossians 1 actually has something to do with Psalm 119.5. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there with me. Psalm 119, verse 5. We're working our way through this great psalm. It has 22 stanzas, 176 verses. We're on verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. This plea of the psalmist that I just read for you is a prayer from the deepest place in his heart. Um, oh, he says, that my ways may be steadfast. Can you sense the yearning of his soul in that phrase that he used? David Garrick, the great English actor of the 18th century, once said that he would gladly give 100 pounds of silver if he could but utter the word oh with the same passion that George Whitfield did. Oh, can you picture it? Can you hear it? This is the psalmist's cry of his heart. It is a, almost a painful oh that he wishes, he desires deeply that God would do this for him. This expression, oh, is a cry of deep emotion and is intended to communicate a passionate desire of the heart. What I want you to see today, Sun Valley, is that the cry of the heart towards God demonstrates the presence of the Holy Spirit and a genuine walk with Christ. Let me say that again. My desire for you this morning is that you see that the cry of the heart towards God demonstrates the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and a genuine walk with Christ. Can you truly say from the bottom of your heart, oh, that my ways would be steadfast? So why do we see such deep emotion just boiling out of the psalmist? Why does he cry out from the depths of his soul this particular request to God? Well, the first answer is your first point in the bulletin. The command is of God. <laughs> Isn't that significant? Oh, that may my ways would be steadfast in what? In keeping your statutes. What exactly is he crying out for? Well, look at the first four verses in this psalm. Can't you see there he's crying out for obedience? Certainly. 
Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It's an idea of consistent daily living under the instruction of God. Verse 1, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Not just to know them, but keep them. And then on down to verse 5. Verse after verse after verse is talking about the blessing of obedience. Obedience is that which brings pleasure to God and happiness to God's people. So if our happiness is dependent upon our obedience, then isn't verse 5 a reasonable prayer? Here's a suggestion for you, Sun Valley. If our happiness is dependent on and proportionate to our obedience, then let's crazy obey. How happy do you want to be? Obey to that level. And when you get happy enough, just stop obeying. Right? <laughs> well, besides the compensation of happiness for our obedience, there is this fact that it is God who's commanding. Shouldn't that be sufficient? At least for us who call ourselves Christians. Thankfully, God offers more than that. But it is, in fact, Him. He is committing. Look at verse 4. You have commanded. Who? God. God has commanded our obedience. Hopefully we don't need to debate the necessity of obedience to a command of God. We may not all obey God the way we should, but I doubt many will argue his right to command. He's God after all. The Bible makes it clear that God is the sovereign Lord, whether or not we bow to him. Just because you don't willingly obey him or submit to his lordship doesn't negate or diminish his sovereign rule. I actually get a kick out of these so-called atheists that declare that God doesn't exist. As if it means something. See, God, God has commanded. The question is, are we going to obey? He's the one who's commanded so, so what is the, the, the motive behind the psalmist's yearning of his soul? God has commanded. <laughs> Secondly, the need is real. And I think we don't have to look in the mirror too long to prove this. Unless we actually pursue God and seek uh, his work in us, our obedience will never be consistent. But he's praying here for a steadfast obedience. Friends, our lives prove that we are unable to obey as we should. Our sinful failure demonstrates how impotent we are. Our prayer for God's help reveal our inability. I mean, even the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me. And you thought you were alone. The Apostle Paul, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can you relate to that? I can. I think we all can. See, Paul's cry here in Romans 7 is just like the psalmist's cry back in Psalm 119.5. He knew, both of these men knew of their personal inability to do what God commands. And so, 
they cry out, Lord, please, oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Every prayer for strength to obey or to do right is our personal acknowledgement of our weakness, is it not? Why else would we pray? Think about your prayers. Aren't, aren't most of your prayers requests for God's help in some way or another? Why do you pray like this? It's because instinctively you know that without Christ you can't do it. Even the pagans know this. Friends, this is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And it's how God receives glory from our circumstances. We get into trouble, we cry out for his help, and he rescues us. We get the help, he gets the glory. This is Psalm 50. So we pray for God's intervention in the lives of those we love and want to come to Christ because we know in our minds that unless God acts, no one will come. Right? If we truly believe they could come on their own, we would say, let me convince you a little bit more of the, the greatness of, of knowing Jesus. No. We share the gospel with them, and then we get on our knees and we plead with God for mercy. Right? It, it, it's, it's the same in our spiritual growth. Unless God acts, we remain spiritually apathetic. Hence this cry, oh, that my ways would be steadfast. You heard the old chorus, while on others you are calling, do not pass me by. Remember that one? That should be the prayer of our hearts. Um, this is going to date me, but a while back there was a sitcom called Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> Those of you who laugh are with me. Well, the, the, the uh, setting was an alternative high school in New York City with a bunch of delinquents taught by their teacher named Cotter. One of the students was named Horshack. And Horshack was, in this sitcom, was famous for raising his hand obnoxiously and going, oh, 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 oh. When the teacher would ask a question, oh, 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 It's like, shut up, would you, Horshack? And this was kind of an ongoing running joke in this sitcom. Friends, we should be Horshack with God. Oh, oh, choose me, choose me, God. Oh. This is the psalmist's plea. This is, this is Paul's plea. Why can't it be ours? In fact, it should be ours, shouldn't it? Oh, God, choose me. Because we know unless God acts, we are hopeless. And not only in our salvation, as Jesus points out clearly in, in, in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, but also in our spiritual life, in our daily walk, unless God acts, we are hopeless. Even as Christians with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we, we need an act of mercy and grace on his part so that we can obey faithfully, steadfastly. God must act. When we humbly come to Christ as God the Father draws us, we are given a new nature and the gift of the Holy Spirit who begins to act in us and through us. And with an importunate plea, we continue to plead for grace and mercy to live out obediently the commands of God that we might be drawn closer to him. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, friends, we are poor, 
blind, and naked, even if we don't know it. Like the Laodicean church, remember, in Revelation 3? What a fearful group of people that was. They didn't obey too well, but they felt, self, they felt very self-confident. Felt no need for the Holy Spirit. Very confident, independent of Christ, and yet they called themselves Christians. And Jesus didn't take to that too well, did he? What did he say that he would like to do with lukewarm people? Spit them out of his mouth. See, they, this church, Laodicea, had a frightening sense of security, even though their lives didn't demonstrate the presence of God. This is an ongoing pastoral concern for me. I really don't want anyone attending Sun Valley Church and be blind to their need of personal holiness and daily repentance. Please don't leave here thinking you're okay. You're not. I'm not. We need Christ. He's the only reason we might be okay. It concerns me when I see someone come to church but have little other evidence of faith in their life but coming to church. Jesus said to his believing disciples, without me, you can do nothing. In the same context, John 14, when Jesus was in the garden right before his betrayal, Jesus said this about the connection between the Holy Spirit and steadfast obedience, the thing that the psalmist is praying for. John 14, verses 15 and 16, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right? Obey is what Jesus said. And then he says this, in the very next breath, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. Do you think there's a connection between the Holy Spirit and your obedience? <laughs> yes. This was Jesus' point. Friends, the indwelling Holy Spirit gives the power to steadfastly obey the commands of God when we utter pleas for help. Romans 8 speaks of the same thing. Living life in the power of the Holy Spirit versus the power of your own natural flesh. I think we know the difference. In the act of regeneration, of course, the Holy Spirit actually enters into our hearts and minds and gives us the necessary things for victory over sin in life, gives us the things necessary for steadfast obedience. Paul says this in verse 9 of Romans 8, You, however, are not of the flesh but of the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. And how do we know this? Their fruit, their works, their obedience, or lack thereof. Now let's look at the promise given. This is the third reason, and there are others, but this is the third that I want to mention to you on why the psalmist pleased with such deep emotion that his ways would be steadfast. Oh, God, that my ways would be steadfast. Because of the promise given. Friends, what's the promise here in these verses for one who will obey? You haven't forgotten the last few sermons, have you? It's happiness, blessing. The promise of obedience is happiness, blessing, peace, contentment, joy. Will that not get you out of bed in the morning? The only reason you might want to stay in bed is because you have no hope of those things. You really don't believe that you can be happy and joyful and content. So maybe you ought to stay in bed. But here, the promise is this, obey and I'll bless you. Obey, that's all I'm asking, obey 
and you'll receive joy and happiness and peace and contentment. All the things the world's promising you through disobedience, I'll just give you if you obey. See, one of the main reasons that the psalmist yearned for steadfast obedience is because he knew of the benefits that came with it. He was an observant guy. When I obey, <laughs> I'm blessed. Maybe I'll obey. God has promised blessing and happiness to those who will obey. And here's where I need to say that wanting something isn't enough. I mean, which one of you really don't want happiness? Would you please stand? No, all of us want happiness. We all want joy. We all want contentment. So wanting those things isn't exceptional. Well, at least I want them. Well, do you? And here's my point. How badly do you want them? How badly do you want the benefits that come with obedience? Bad enough to obey? Friends, you can want all you want, but until your want turns into action, you remain on the outside looking in. Friends, wanting is the first step in a lifelong journey. Unfortunately, many people go to their graves wanting. Don't be one of those people. Until our superficial wishes turn into a yearning of the soul, our steadfast obedience is out of reach. If you're ever going to be that happy man or woman of God, you must follow through on your desires, and your follow-through will reveal whether your desire was superficial wish or a yearning of the soul. Which one is it? We all have this wish. But how many of us have this yearning of the soul? Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Friends, we must seek Christ. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he began by telling his audience how they too could experience happiness and peace. He formed the introduction of his sermon around this very gospel. He said, the poor in spirit will see the kingdom of God. Who are the poor in spirit? Those who acknowledge their inability. Those who have nothing to bring to the table. Those who come simply saying, I want, I need, please God, do something. Those are the people that Jesus said will be happy and blessed. Poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are those, happy are those who mourn. Those not only who acknowledge their need, but come confessing their sins and repenting it and being sorrowful over them. Blessed are those who mourn. So those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those are the ones who come to God on his terms. They'll become the meek people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5. And what is this seeking and hungering and thirsting after righteousness? But what we read here in Psalm 119.5. That's what this is. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. It's a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's a result of having the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You will not hunger and thirst for righteousness until God does his work in your soul. And when he does, you can't help but hunger and yearn for righteousness and say things like this, oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Jesus' point was that the only way to fulfill the purpose of your existence, the only way to 
to experience happiness as he has designed us to experience is to embrace him as our creator and pursue him with steadfast obedience, hungering and thirsting after his righteousness. Friends, Christ, of course, is the key to all of this, and this is where Colossians 1's come in. All right? Tying them together. The only path to true happiness is found in Christ. And this makes complete sense, after all, doesn't it? Who is he? (laughs) Who is Christ? Is he some poor, lonely, mistreated Hebrew or Jew a couple thousand years ago? No. Colossians 1 tells us this, verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Wait a minute. Jesus created all things? Yes. The one who walked through the Holy Land 2,000 years ago, born in a stable, that guy? Yeah. He created all things and then entered into his own creation for you and me. For by him all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, everything, whether thrones, dominion, anything you want to think of, Jesus created it. Now listen to this. All things were created through him, and here's the the line I want you to see, and for him. You were created for him. He should be the focus of your life. This is critically important. He is the key. Christ himself is the one promised to all who will come to him for grace and and forgiveness. When we come to God with with a broken and contrite heart, with a poor spirit, mourning over our sin, what are we coming for? We're coming for him. We're coming for him and nothing else. The saga of redemption is the story of all scripture. Jesus is the focus of all creation and all existence. This is what we heard from Colossians 1. This is is what we preach. Christ must be our life. Oh, that my ways will be steadfast can only happen if Christ is your life. Remember Jesus in the Gospels? He never turned anybody away. He was a friend of sinners. Are you a sinner? Jesus likes your type. All who came to him in repentance and faith were forgiven, healed, saved, renewed. He went after specific people. He pursued Zacchaeus. He renewed the woman at the well in John 4. He gave sight to the blind man and and completely regenerated his soul in John 9. Christ is the one who promises, and he is the one who is promised. Jesus promises himself to all who will come. You remember in, in, in John 4, I, I love this part of that story, the woman at the well. The woman says, well, when, when the prophet comes, you know, when the, when the Savior of the world comes, he's going to explain all these things to us. He's going to answer to all of our problems. He's the promised one. He's what we want. I'm waiting for him. What did Jesus say? What a great story. I am he. I'm the guy you're looking for. Can you imagine the look on that woman's face? I mean, God had, had begun in that moment to convert her soul and show her that he was her life. 
And her response was a little bit instructive, isn't it? Ran home and told everybody she could see, everybody she could run into. I have found the guy. I found this guy. Another guy, huh? No, I'm talking about the guy. We're talking the savior of the world. I found him. And then the whole town came running. See, friends, Christ is the goal, the end, the means, the object, the subject, the focus of our existence. He's the point of our lives. Colossians 3, 4, Paul said, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Who's Christ? <laughs> He's your life. That's who he is. I want to point out something we might pass over because it's so obvious in the Gospels. The only place where people were forgiven, healed, renewed, saved, encouraged, comforted, or given hope was with Jesus. You ever notice that when you're reading the Gospels? The only place any of those things happened was in the presence of Jesus. Except in one occasion when Jesus healed the official son in Capernaum in John 4. Jesus did a remote healing. He said, go home, your son's healed. But besides that, every single transformation took place in the presence of Christ. And that is significant. Because that's where we need to be. <laughs> right? In the presence of Christ. Friends, there, there is no fulfillment, happiness, and joy outside his presence. He, he created it. He gets to dole it out how he likes, and he said, it's in my presence, you're going to receive it. The point here is um, that we must pursue Christ with all of our heart. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Spurgeon wrote a very good devotional called Morning and Evening, and I would recommend it to you. And this past week, he, he spoke of where Christ is. He spoke of the beggars, the lame, the sick, and the sinners. And he told in his devotional how those unregenerate folks, even them, knew how to access Christ. They knew where Jesus walked, how he got from Bethany to Jerusalem. They knew exactly where he would be in Capernaum. They knew exactly where he would walk in Jerusalem. And they lined up on the, that street that he was going to use and waited for him. It's a condemnation to us, isn't it? Because we know where Jesus is. He's actually more accessible to us than he was to them. Where did Jesus say he would be? In his word, right? In his people. In the elements of the Lord's Supper. In prayer. So let me encourage you with the following things. Be with Christ in his word. Friends, do you... Do you want what the plea is pursuing? Do you want the same answer that the psalmist was pursuing? Then do this, these simple things. Be with Christ in his word. Romans 10, very familiar. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You want faith? Be in his word. 
Be regularly under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Be here. Come to Sunday seminars. How happy do you want to be? How fulfilled do you really want to be? Because we can give you two doses of it here. Once here and then once in the next hour. How desperate really are you for Christ? You know, in your mind, you think, yeah, Christ is all, Christ is my life, Christ is everything, I understand that, but i got to get home. <laughs> Do you see the problem with think, that kind of thinking? How, how desperate are you for Christ? Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. You see, the cry of the heart towards God demonstrates the presence of the Holy Spirit and a genuine walk with Christ. Is your heart yearning for Christ? Then be with him in his word. Engulf your mind and heart in the precious word of Christ. Isaiah said this in chapter 55, Incline your ear, come to me, hear, so that your soul may live. Friends, the Holy Spirit uses the word of Christ preached and taught to draw you into fellowship with Christ. Just as Lydia was listening to Paul preach, the Holy Spirit opened her heart. As Peter was preaching in Acts 11, the Holy Spirit opened the hearts and minds of his hearers. The Holy Spirit uses the context of preaching and teaching to grab hold of your wayward heart and draw you into rich fellowship with him. And it can't happen anyplace else. How desperate are you for Christ? That's why you must be in church regularly, and I mean regularly, to hear the word of Christ preached and taught. Of course, the church you decide to attend must actually do that. The word of Christ is what will draw your affections to him. You sense that kind of a drifting of your affections throughout the week? Look forward to this day. Right now, I can tell you, your mind and heart is closer to Christ than it was when you came in. Guaranteed. Why? Not because I'm preaching, but because God is speaking to you through the preaching. That's why. Be here. And I'll include under the teaching or the, the word of God, I'm going to include the idea of Christ. Um, meeting us in the sacraments in the Lord's Supper because it's from the word of God we get that. Jesus said, this is my body. This blood is the blood of the new covenant. And so Jesus in his word said, here's where I'll meet you. I'll meet you in the elements. It's kind of a mystery to us, isn't it? We know there's something special going on, but we can't yet quite describe it. Um, the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans taught that Christ was present in the elements, in the sacraments. And some, like Luther, believe that Christ Jesus was actually physically present in, with, and under the elements somehow. He had a hard time explaining it. Uh, but Ulrich Zwingli disagreed with him and believed that it wasn't as literal as Luther thought, but said that the elements represented Christ. We can see that, obviously, right? Broken bread, you know, the, the cup of wine, the broken body, the blood of Christ. We can see the representation there. Um, and that's what Zwingli said it was. Um, but we teach here at Sun Valley Church that the supper is more than just a memorial, more than just a representation, but less than the presence of Christ. Somewhere in between there, 
is what we experience Christ really doing with us. His spirit comes here, he's promised it would, and ministers to us in the elements. So you should not miss any time we serve the elements. Why? Because Jesus is here in them in a unique way that he isn't any other time in the life of the Christian. He is here in the elements. And so being here to celebrate the Lord's Supper is very important to your spiritual life. By being here today, you're going to go out spiritually stronger and be able to have more steadfast obedience because you came and were preached at and Christ ministered to you through the preaching and the elements. You, whether you feel it or not, will walk out stronger in your pursuit of Christ. And we know this because Jesus himself promised it. Is this your prayer, friend? Oh, that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Is that your heart's desire? Then, then being here today, hearing the word preached, being served the elements will go a long way in helping you. So be with Christ in his word. Secondly, be with Christ in prayer. God wants our whole hearts more than he wants anything else we have to offer. You know, you have a lot of gifts, and I'm, I'm regularly impressed by the many gifts that this church has. But God doesn't want your gifts. He's the one who gave them to you. He doesn't want them back, all right? He wants your heart. <laughs> he wants all your heart. And the way he, he, he um, of course, he knows your mind. He knows everything about you. But the way he wants to hear that you, that, that you have him in mind, that he has your whole heart, is through prayer. You express it to him. You tell him these things in prayer. And this verse in Psalm 119.5 models that. Can't you see that? If nothing else, can't you see that he's simply telling God, I, I want more of you? If nothing else, that's what we can see. Th think about how you would feel if your child, who was struggling with obedience in some area, came to you and asked you to help them do better and be more consistent. After you woke up, you would say, wow, awesome. Wouldn't we? Yes, all parents would agree with that. How do you think God feels when we come to him and acknowledge our deep desire to obey him and to follow him and, and help in doing so? Please, God, choose me, help me. Friends, it would bring you joy just as it does God. So we must plead with God daily for steadfast obedience. We need to tell him we are completely unable to do so without him. We must tell him that we need his spirit to ex excite, literally excite our souls and our hearts if we're ever going to love him as we should. Tell him that you believe, but that you still struggle with unbelief. Beg God to douse the fire of materialism and worldliness that rages in your soul and ask God to kindle the fire of love for Christ in its place. Offer your heart to Christ in prayer. Ask God to help you think on Christ more. Love him more. Serve him more. Set an alert on your smartphone to remind you to think about Christ for 60 seconds. A couple times a day. It'll be your Christ alarm. And if you need something to jumpstart your meditation for 60 seconds, read Colossians 1, 15 through 17 that we just had read to you. 
Read it over. Who is this, in fact, Christ that we need so badly? Colossians 1, 15 through 17 will tell you all you need to know. <laughs> David prayed that he would not forget all the benefits of Christ. We, we heard this in our call to worship this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. These are the words of David, the psalmist. Bless the Lord, forget not. He heals diseases. He, he forgives iniquities. He re redeems your life from the pit. He crowns us with loving righteousness. These are the things, friends, that we need to be reminded of. You know, we can pray the same things, can't we? I want to read for you uh, an expert, excerpt from a book that the Timothy Group men are reading in our church concerning these things. Listen and see if this stirs your soul. Does this lovely, beauteous one, speaking of Christ, this fairest of 10,000, this most excellent and altogether lovely person bear a special love to me? To such a vile worm as me? To such a dead dog as me? To such an undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinner as me? Oh, what a marvelous kindness this is. What infinite riches of free grace. Does he know me by name? You've got to be kidding me. He knows me by name. Has he given himself for me and given himself to me? And shall I not give him my heart? As it is written in his book, redeemed with his blood, clothed with his righteousness, beautified with his image, he has put the dignity of a child of God upon me and prepared a place in the Father's house for me. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how astounding. Friends, do you desire Christ? Thirdly, besides being with Christ in his word and in prayer, here's a more personal approach, from our own perspective at least. Build a resume of evidence. What does that mean? Well, build your assurance of your love for Christ and faith in him by loving him more and more in every possible way you can think of. By always perfecting your love for him in every way possible. Be regularly where Christ is. Demonstrate your interest in Christ by showing up where he is. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'll be there. Well, if Jesus is there, I'm there. I'm going to go. Jesus didn't say, I'll meet you at your son's baseball game. He said, no, I'll meet you with the saints. You choose where you want to go. So Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. <laughs> Do I love him? Do I desire him? Then I'll obey. Friends, we know his commandments. We've heard them a thousand times. Love one another, pray, serve, give. Friends, do these things and they'll buttress your faith. They, they will, they will uh, protect you in times of discouragement. 
Fourthly, grow in your hatred for sin or loathing for sin, if you don't use the word hate in your house. Grow in your loathing for sin. We talk a lot about this. Um, We've talked about it at length in our short series on repentance, but until you hate sin, you'll never leave it, friends. You you know that. Uh, Pray that God will grant you a loathing of your sin. Thomas Vincent, a quote from this book that I just read from you, said this in the same book, disturb sin as much as you can. Wage war every day with your remaining lusts. Let no day pass without giving some blows, some thrusts and wounds to sin. Can you see the battle? (laughs) Blows and thrusts and wounds. The more room sin has in your heart, the less room Christ will have there. Loathe sin. How desperate are you for Christ? And finally, be with God's people. I've already said this a couple times, but I'll just end with this. Why do we need to be with God's people? I mean, they're kind of stiff, boring people, right? Well, God knows that when we spend time with others of like faith, we are encouraged in our faith. We hear answers to prayer that give us hope, that give us belief that God will do that for us. The Holy Spirit uses the words and actions of others to build our faith. Our small group, we just discussed this last week. The enemy wants us isolated. God wants us connected. It's not hard. The enemy wants you to think that you're okay by yourself. You're doing fine like the Laodicean Christians. You're doing okay. Just keep doing life. Just don't do anything really bad. All along, Jesus said, you don't even know you're blind and naked and hungry. Friends, no. (laughs) Don't be an isolated Christian. Be, Be a connected Christian to demonstrate your true heart's desire for Christ. Because Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I will be in their midst. Do two or three gather in different homes throughout this valley that you can connect with that are Christians? Yeah. We have 12 or 13 small groups that meet on all sorts of nights of the week in different areas of the valley. You can find one. Get connected. Don't be an isolated Laodicean Christian. You know, you've heard this illustration before, I think, if you've been here, because I've used it. This old preacher went to uh, visit one of his church's wayward members. And the old pastor came into the living room after he was invited into the house, and he just sat down next to the fireplace, picked up his uh, cup of tea, and just sat there and watched the fire. Uh, Neither of these men said anything to each other for the longest time. And after a while passed, the pastor got up and grabbed the fire tongs and grabbed a hot ember out of the fire and set it on the hearth and put the tongs away. And he just went back and sat in his chair and sat there and watched the ember cool and dim and then die. And the wayward church member finally said, okay, pastor, I get the message loud and clear. I'll be in church on Sunday. Friends, in the same way that an ember from a fire will grow cold and die, those who isolate themselves from other believers will do the same. I don't care how strong you think you are, you were not meant to live the Christian life on an island. We are 
the body of Christ. We are a community of saints, a building brought together by the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Oh, church, may our ways be steadfast in keeping God's statutes. Let's pray.